Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, that can be found on page 965. While you're turning there, um, the title of the message this morning is simply, We Are Being Transformed. We Are Being Transformed. It was a few months ago in January that at the men's breakfast, we had the pleasure of looking at this exact same passage together. Now, January was five months ago, and potentially preaching a new sermon in five months' time is a feat that even I could accomplish. So I want to assure you that we are not looking at the same text here again simply as a means to avoid studying something new, but the discussion we felt that came out of that time that we spent together at the men's breakfast and this time in 2 Corinthians 3, we felt was exceedingly fruitful, exceedingly beneficial for us, and we decided that it would be beneficial if we would look to that as an entire church body. So that's what we're doing this morning. I'm going to read for us in our hearing the passage that we are going to deal with this morning. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 to 18. Now, verse 18 is our destination, but in order to rightly understand that we have to have the entire passage in our understanding, so let's walk through it, reading it together. Verse 4 says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of God this morning. 
my goal in looking at this passage with us this morning is quite simple. It is to encourage you. It is to encourage you in that Jesus Christ is doing what he says he's going to do in the heart of every single believer. In the heart of every person who has looked to Christ in faith, he is perfecting the good work that he began in you, and he will fail to do that for none of his children, not you and not me. I would hope, it would be my prayer, that you might actually even hear nothing new this morning. It would be wonderful if everything that I say, you hear and go, yes, I knew that. That was my understanding. That would be wonderful, but... If you're like me, many of the things that we'll discuss today in terms of how we grow in holiness, well, these were very, very, very slow to come by in my life. I spent many years as a somewhat harsh, legal-minded person, not understanding the sovereign operation of the Holy Spirit in my life and heart to make me into the image of Christ. So that is what we're looking at this morning. Every believer... Every true believer desires to grow in holiness, yes? Every Christian, every person that the Lord has redeemed desires to grow in obedience to their Lord. Every Christian feels this burden. If you you don't feel this burden, the the question is, do do you know the Lord? There is no such thing as as a Christian who, as a matter of course, never desires to walk in holiness and obedience to their Lord. Because we've been given a new heart. We've been given a new nature. Our nature has been transformed such that we now desire to walk in his ways, desire to walk in his statutes. There is no such thing as a believer who is utterly and entirely unconcerned with that. We all want to grow in holiness. Now, when it comes to growing in our obedience, when it comes to growing in holiness, we can often sort of lazily or sloppily refer to this process of growing in obedience as, quote-unquote, increasing in our sanctification. Increasing in our sanctification. Now, some of you might remember, when we looked at the book of Hebrews, there was a message in chapter 12 where Pastor John went in depth discussing how we are in truth to speak of sanctification in the New Testament. And it was fairly paradigm shifting for some of us, or at least vocabulary shifting, in order to come to an understanding that sanctify simply means to consecrate or to separate in a ceremonial way. We learned in that message from Hebrews 12 that it is a state of being once for all set apart. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2 the following, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit 
and belief in the truth. And so we were, we were awakened to the fact through those and many other texts and through that message from Hebrews chapter 12 a few months ago that what we often refer to is our, as our sanctification as we pursue obedience is more accurately described as pursuing the fruit of our sanctification. The fruit of our sanctification. Just a few more quotes from that message to help refresh your memory. Holiness is the living out to what you have already been separated to. Holiness is the living out in the Christian life what you already are. You don't live a life of holiness before the Lord to become separated, but rather you live a life of holiness before the Lord because you have been separated in Christ. And finally, your good works, therefore, biblically defined, are not your sanctification, and they do not sanctify you. Rather, they are the fruit of your having been sanctified by the Lord. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know what a catechism is? It's a way of teaching theology but through question and answer, question and answer, question and answer. Question 35 says the following. What is sanctification? Answer. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. You hear what that biblical definition does? It, it separates two things. It separates the reality of our sanctification, which the Lord accomplishes, and the fruit of our sanctification, which is living in light of that. It is knowing that our holiness is utterly secured before the judge of heaven that is our motivation to pursue obedience in gratitude to him. And I want to press on to further obedience. And my heart is broken that I don't want to press on to further obedience even more. And every true believer can understand that. The question is, how? How, once having a right understanding of what it is we're talking about, how is it that we press on to obedience in the Christian life? The most common way that most of us probably think about this is by conjuring to mind some list of particular spiritual habits, diligent practices, or disciplines by which we believe we will grow in holiness. And we need to talk about this for a second. Discipline, self-discipline is a radically powerful thing. People can and have done incredible things as a result of simply disciplining themselves to do it. For example, there's a man named James Lawrence. In 2015, James Lawrence is a triathlete, all right? He, he runs, uh, he competes in triathlons, and in particular, he does Ironman distance triathlons. Do you know what that is? All right, you, you, it's, it's very simple, it's very simple. You, you simply swim 2.4 miles, usually in open water if it's by the ocean, so you're swimming 2.4 miles in the ocean, and then when you're done, you get on a bike and you ride 112 miles, and then when you're done with that, you get off the bike, change your shoes, and you run a full 26.2 mile marathon. That's it, simple. Now, 
Listen, lots of people have done that. Maybe even some of you in the room have done that. I, I like to ride a bike. I don't mind riding a bike a long distance. I can't swim very well. I think swimming in the water is scary, and running is just the worst, so I would never do that. But he did it, and he did it a lot. In 2015, he did 50 of them in 50 consecutive days in 50 different states. And since then, lots of other people have done that same feat. It is astonishing what can be accomplished through sheer force of discipline and habit. To put it in the religious realm, there are many people involved in a false religion or a cult who have radically changed their external behavior, right? I mean, radical life change through nothing other than, well, a certain fear of judgment, but disciplining themselves to order their life externally to behave in a certain way. Radical change is possible. But is that the way that we change as believers? Is, is growth and holiness in the Christian life nothing more than the spirit-enabled application of try real hard? Is it nothing more than the spirit-enabled application of a certain diligent and disciplined list of habits? Is the Christian life like having been given a membership to a spiritual gym where your redemption has been won, which is like your gym membership, and that lets you get in, and you go in, and it's, it's now it's your job to work as hard as you possibly can at all of the machines and all of the weights, and to work hard, and then once a Sunday, the Lord will check up on you to see how you're doing, and if you've done enough, if you've worked hard enough of your cardio, if you've done enough squats, and whatever else you have to do. You can tell I don't spend a lot of time in the gym. <laughs> is that what the Christian life is like? Is that the mechanism by which we change? The scripture would answer this with a resounding no. That is not. Now, no one is suggesting that Christians ought to be undisciplined. Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Yes, absolutely. But that is not the means by which we cause our own transformation and growth in holiness. It does not work that way. Now, hearing this can be either unsettling or comforting. If you're bad at that kind of thing, it can be very comforting. You think, oh, my goodness, well, then there's hope. But if you're, if you're like me, if you're more like a systems kind of person, I just, just tell me what to do. Just tell me the procedure. Tell me the boxes to check. Tell me the order. Let me get on with it then it's unsettling because you feel like, well, what, 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 what do I do then? What do I do? In order to get a biblical answer to this question, we're going to take a look at 2 Corinthians 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this is a very pastoral letter Paul is writing to a very difficult church, a difficult church. Uh, because of the influence of some of my colleagues on our pastoral team here, I have begun mixing my metaphors. And so at the men's breakfast, I believe I referred to first the Corinthian church as a little bit of a train wreck. And then I believe I referred to them as a little bit of a dumpster fire. And then 
the image was combined into a train wreck of dumpster fires. So if you imagine a loaded freight train full of dumpsters on fire, <laughs> somewhat vivid. But the Corinthian church had issues. They had issues. You, you, you have, you have you've, you've, the need to be instructed to say, uh, men, uh, don't stop going to prostitutes as was your former way of life and, and stop profaning the Lord's table by, by the rich getting there early and eating everything and getting drunk. It's like, these are huge issues. And if ever there was a church where Paul could have just skipped and cut to the chase and said, all right, I just got a list of things you have got to get working on, it would have been the Corinthian church. But it, and he did, to be sure, give them many, many, many commands, but he lays a foundation for how that change was to occur in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In defending his new covenant ministry, we get an incredible insight into how believers, how we grow in holiness. 2 Corinthians 3.18, friends, is our destination. When we get there, we will pose five simple questions to that one-verse text. Those questions are in your bulletin. But in order to rightly understand it, we have to understand the context in which it's given. So we're going to walk through verses 4 to 18 quickly in a summarized fashion and then get to our destination of 2 Corinthians 3.18 to see what it is that Paul says about how believers are transformed in holiness in this life. Let's start together at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So the subject here is the new covenant, the new covenant ratified in the blood of Christ, as we learned in Hebrews. Of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now to clarify, what is the letter and the Spirit? This is not as it's commonly said, the letter of the law is what it says, and the Spirit of the law is ah, what it means. That, that's not it. It's not what it means. The letter of the law is God's actual law, God's actual righteous requirements. In the Old Covenant, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and even, even further summarized in you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself and this is the whole law and the prophets our Lord said that's the law the spirit is the Holy Spirit who is the minister to us of the new covenant that we have in the blood of Christ continue with me in verse 7 now if the ministry of death wow that's how Paul refers to God's law as the ministry of death. See, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings life to us because it is by his work that we are united to Christ, who is our perfect substitute and law keeper. But the first and foremost purpose of the law, God's righteous requirements, Paul calls it a ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Do we understand why the law kills us? Do we understand that? Andrew, you were exceedingly clear with that in your prayer this morning. The law of God kills us because his righteous requirement has no exceptions. 
it, there is no room for progress. There is no room for improvement. There is no grading on a curve. There is no direction of your life, not perfection of your life. It is utterly and entirely inflexible, demanding perfect obedience from the heart without exception. Its job is to drive us to Christ because we are utterly undone before God as a result of his righteous law. Thus, it is the ministry of death to us. That ministry of death carved in letters on stone, verse 7, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Whose righteousness do you suppose that is? It's not ours, right? It is not the believer's righteousness. We've already established that any righteousness you could muster serves to do nothing but be steamrolled under the standard of God's law. This is the righteousness that is ours by Christ through the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, indeed in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory of the new covenant that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And then verse 12, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Guys, the word hope in the New Testament does not mean a wish. The word hope means a present guarantee of a future reality. A present guarantee of a future reality. The hope is connected to the permanent glory of the new covenant, which is the righteousness of Christ for us because of the Holy Spirit. The permanent glory of the new covenant is because of the righteousness of Christ for us, given to us by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, we are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You recall that Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law from God, and when he came down, his face was literally glowing, and he put a veil over that to shield the Israelites from seeing that in its fullness. And that glory would fade, that shining would fade, and it would go back up on the mountain and it would happen again. This text is telling us that a veil is something that conceals. It's something that obscures vision. The veiled and temporary nature of the shining of Moses' face was a picture of the veiled and temporary nature of the entire old covenant system. We saw that temporary nature over and over again as we went through the book of Hebrews together, right? Every time we were confronted with the repeated nature of the sacrifices, we came face to face with the, the, the ultimate futility of it and that that wasn't the end all, that it was pointing to something beyond it that would not have to be done repeatedly, namely the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 14 but their minds, that would be the children of Israel, their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. The veil that was on Moses' face is now on their hearts whenever the old covenant, the law, is read, because the veil, it says, is only removed through Christ. That veil that, that, that covers, that conceals, is only removed in Christ. Now, Paul does not take a brief pause here in verse 14 to to take a quick sidebar to describe for us how it is that that veil is removed in Christ. He doesn't do that right here. But he, he has done this elsewhere. And it is worth taking a moment to look at that in Romans chapter 9. It's just a few verses that we need to put into our minds. It's the exact same context, Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Paul is addressing how it is that the veil is removed in Christ. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. He says this, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. God gave them the righteous requirement, and instead of understanding that it crushed them in their sin, they looked at it and said, yep, we'll do that. We'll do it. We will, we will earn it. We will, well, it's, we're going we're gonna to improve by our own diligence, effort, and effort. We are going to be obedient to this. They have stumbled, it says in verse 32, over the stumbling stone, as is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then this, chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that God supplies in Christ, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And seeking to establish their own, excuse me, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's addressing the same issue here. What caused them to look at the old covenant and to see it as standards and rules that they could adhere to? That blindness is only removed when one comes to see Christ as the only one in whom His obedience will be accepted and you must look to him in faith. So to have the veil removed in Christ is to look to him as your sole and only righteousness before God. Back to 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed Now the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. What kind of freedom? Not freedom to sin, but freedom from the law of God as your death sentence. Freedom to obey. 
freedom to love God and to love neighbor, albeit radically imperfectly, but without despair because Christ has stood in our place as our perfect representative substitute and law keeper. So we finally get to verse 18. As those who have been killed by the law, who have seen Christ as our sole and only righteousness, who now have freedom to obey from the heart, what are we to do? Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is so incredibly encouraging. In order to draw this out, we're going to pose five questions to this text. You see those there in your bulletin. And in answering those five brief questions, we're going to just let the encouragement pour out of this verse and into our souls. Question number one, who is being transformed? Who is being transformed? Answer, every believer is being transformed. Every believer. It says, and we all are being transformed into the same image. That means you, if you are in Christ, your believing husband, your believing wife, your believing children, as difficult as and challenging as those relationships can be at times, this promise is for every believer. It's for every brother and sister in this room. It's for you and me. Think about the fact that Paul said this to the Corinthians. Like, would be one thing to say this to the lovely Philippians who were doing great. And he could say in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm confident of this very thing that you began a good work and you will complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. That's great. But the Corinthians, with all that they had going on and the intense and gross sin that Paul had to confront in their midst to say to them and we all with unveiled face or being transformed to the same image. Notice the corporate emphasis here as well. It's not all of you each individually, although that's true. It is we all. There is a collective thought here. And the idea is that that happens in the context primarily of the gathered church as Christ from his word is proclaimed to us. We all are being transformed. Question two. What is the condition of those who are being transformed? What is the condition of those who are being transformed? Answer, their faces are unveiled. Their faces are unveiled. The text says, and we all with unveiled face are being transformed. I have argued, based on the time we took, that in Paul, 
That means to have an unobstructed view of the fact that it is in Christ that the old covenant is fulfilled and we enter into the permanent glory of the new by his righteousness. That's what it means to have an unveiled face, to know that you are free from the law in terms of righteousness. Therefore, you can obey in joyful freedom, joyful freedom, Christians. It's an incredible quote from the short little book, God's Way of Holiness, from Horatius Bonner, who lived in the 1800s. Listen to what he says about this. The law of God is the same law, but it has lost its hold on us, its power over us. It cannot cease to challenge perfect obedience from every being under heaven, but its threat and its terror are gone. It can still say obey, but it cannot now say disobey and perish. Our new relationship to the law is that of Christ himself to it. It is that of men who have met all its claims, exhausted all its penalties, and satisfied all of its demands. Brothers and sisters, we with unveiled face have been set free to obey in freedom and joy because our righteousness is secured in heaven. It is in this knowing that we find our confidence and our assurance for our daily fight for holiness. It is from this assurance that we fight. It is not assurance that we fight for. It is this assurance that we fight with as we battle our sin. Question three, what is the activity of those who are being transformed? What is the activity of those who are being transformed? Answer, they are beholding the glory of Christ in the gospel. They are beholding the glory of Christ in the gospel. It says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. This isn't beholding Christ in some sort of generic glory as if that were even possible, but it is beholding Christ's glory in the gospel. It is seeing his new covenant work for us. It is looking at that. It is meditating on that. It is having that preached and proclaimed to you time and time and time again, day after day, week after week as we gather. That's why the goal of every single sermon is the preaching of Christ for sinners. The goal of every single sermon isn't even to look down at the text and say correct things about the words. It's to proclaim Christ in all of Scripture for you, Christian. When I am not beholding Christ, my sin looks wonderful. My sin is so attractive to me when I'm not beholding Christ. And I know that's the same for you. There, in, in, in the moment of temptation, when your flesh is screaming out for satisfaction with what you know is wicked, there is no routine, there is no checklist, there is no accountability partner, there's no anything that will help with that. What we must do is look to and behold Christ. 
to see his beauty in the gospel and his righteousness for us, that it is in that looking that we are transformed from the heart that we might bear the fruit then of that transformation. Satan is an angel of light. He makes wickedness look lovely and he is better at doing that than we are at believing that it's truly evil and darkness. We must look to Christ. Question number four. What is happening to those who are being transformed? What is happening to those who are being transformed? Answer, they are being brought into conformity to the image of Christ. They are being made to grow in holiness. It says that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Being transformed, that is in the passive voice. It's not that you're not doing anything. It's that the kind of thing that you're doing is a looking to Christ, and it is by that that you are transformed from the heart. This is not an argument for holiness by doing nothing. It's just not the kind of doing that we are so prone to approach it with. It is the kind of doing that doggedly fixes your eyes on Christ. And it is out of this transformation that we obey. Our obedience doesn't cause this transformation. Rather, we are transformed as we behold Christ and we bear the fruit of that. Question five. Who is doing the transforming? Who is doing the transforming? Answer, the Holy Spirit. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within the heart of every believer, uniting you to Christ. And it is the Holy Spirit that as you look to Christ and Christ has proclaimed to you from all of Scripture who transforms our hearts and brings us more and more into conformity with his image. You are not transforming you. The Holy Spirit does that. He is the one who does that. In a moment, we're going to look to the Lord's table and we're going to, um, as John Stead will walk us through it in a few moments. We're going to receive the gracious, visible, and physical reminder of Christ's broken body and the blood of his new covenant shed for us. That is one aspect of the looking at and looking to Christ. And having that in our hearts, we are transformed. Everything that we do when we gather is for the purpose of looking to Christ. Christ. Just a couple of thoughts of pastoral encouragement as we close, okay? All fighting against sin, therefore, if this is true, and it is, all fighting against sin is a fight to rest in what Christ has won for you. It is a fight, to be sure. But it is, not, it is not the kind of fight, it is not the kind of energy and effort like you'd put in when you're, if you're preparing to run an Ironman. It's a fight to rest. 
It's a fight to look to Christ and believe that what he has done is sufficient for you, that his goodness is enough for you, that his love and care is enough for you, and that his righteousness stands undefeated before the judgment seat of God for you. It is a fight in every temptation to rest in that. Also, this gives us the freedom to be patient with one another as we grow in holiness. This gives us the freedom to be patient with those around us as the Lord grows them in holiness and perhaps not as fast as we would hope, it gives us the freedom to be patient with them and to let the Lord do his work. And finally, this gives us the freedom to not despair. When we look at our life, if you've been in the Lord for a while, you see that there are are sins and struggles that have long since been defeated, but there are others that are persistent and challenging and doggedly determined to trip you up daily still. This gives us the freedom to continue the fight, but to fight without despair. To fight without despair because we know that that sin has ultimately met its defeat in Christ. To look to him that by that we might grow in holiness even in that stubborn, dogged area of sin and to do that without despair. Father, I thank you for the privilege this morning of looking to your word to intake a lot of information, but the conclusion of which is simple. You are making us holy. You are making your people conformed into the image of Christ. We desire, Lord, that we would grow in holiness We desire that we would look to your son, that we would see him as our sole and only righteousness in whom the veil is removed, knowing that we can now obey in joy and freedom and not lose heart. Lord, the day is coming when we will see you as you are and we will be transformed fully and in an instant into your image. Until that day, Lord, we trust in you. We know that your Holy Spirit is working in the heart of each and every believer to transform us into the image of Christ. We give you thanks for this. In Christ's name we pray.